This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is William Kilbride, Executive Director at the Digital Preservation Coalition. Well, Mr. Kilbride, thanks very much for talking with me today. That's fine. Before we talk about the DPC and, and your work with DPC, uh, with the DPC, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your, your background? It's in, it's in archaeology, is that correct? That, that is correct. Uh, so I suppose uh, I, I started off in archaeology uh, in about the late 80s, early 90s. It was a time in which archaeologists were beginning to experiment and play with uh, new technology properly for the first time. Uh, a great deal of uh, investment and thought into, uh, of course, databases and word processing, desktop publishing, and so forth, but also increasing use of uh, electronic uh, research methods, uh, geophysical survey, uh, geoprospection, and so forth, looking for archaeological sites. All very exciting stuff, and all producing vast quantities, or what at the time appeared like vast quantities of information, even though we now look at them now as being quite small. But of course, archaeology as a discipline has a, a particular problem insofar as uh, archaeologists are very systematic about dismantling the evidence that they uh, rely upon. That's to say that intervention in archaeological research is most often destructive. That has mean, meant there has always been a strong impetus for the retention of archives and records out of excavation. Uh, and the problem quickly arises in the digital domain uh, that once you have all these records in digital form, it very quickly becomes a problem for archaeology to make sure that those records are available in the long term. So in a sense, what I found myself doing was uh, trying to solve some of those problems uh, in a very small way uh, for a little while, uh, not realizing that what the problem was <laughs> was a much bigger problem and one which was uh, very much shared uh, with others. Uh, I worked for a while uh, at Glasgow University, then here, uh, sorry, uh, then subsequently in uh, a little service called the Archaeology Data Service at the University of York, which was trying to tackle this uh, problem in a more effective and more orderly way than I was able to do on my own. And, uh, and that was really what got me into uh, digital preservation. Can I ask you a little bit about the geolocation part of it? Sure. Well, I've heard a lot about it during this past decade about geolocation, but you're, yeah. talk, you're talking about the early 90s, late 80s. Did you have access to a lot of GPS data? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be GPS data. That would be uh, slightly misleading. Uh, we certainly had access to uh, what you would call geographic information systems, certainly from the kind of early 90s onwards. Uh, and they had come out of satellite imagery uh, and to an extent also from the computer-aided mapping uh, domain cartography. Uh, and archaeologists were beginning to use things like uh, data out of, for example, the Landsat uh, photographic surveys, uh, all at a very coarse, uh, very kind of low resolution uh, compared to what we have now, uh, but all allowing us to view archaeolo archaeological sites in a landscape context. And oh, that right, 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 right. And looking for, uh, uh, looking for like, uh, anomalies in the landscape and stuff like that. Precisely, and also helping to interpret the sites. So uh, you would look at, there was a famous survey done by one of my colleagues in, uh, in the University of York who showed, for example, 
uh, that settlements in Iceland in one particular period uh, all sat along the ridges of a particular uh, valley. And her observation was, uh, that's, that's because that was the extent of the mid-winter sunshine or something like that. Uh, the point being that she was able to look at a landscape level to understand you know, the, the archaeology she had in front of her and therefore make reasonable uh, interpretations of the kind of distribution of settlements in a, in a large area. That's the sort of thing that we were doing. In terms of the, the, the sort of geoprospection, that was really more to do with uh, kind of uh, like metal detector surveys or uh, ground penetrating radar, which would be very discreet little surveys. You know, you might survey a as we did as students, we surveyed a big Roman fort not so far from here. And you would produce oodles and oodles of information, huge quantities of information. But at, at first it was all simply written down with a bit of paper and a, and a pencil. Uh, and you would have to try and interpret it in some sort of manual way, which was just crazy, you know, impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the advent of computers meant great. We could actually do some, I suppose, computer graphics uh, based on uh, on these uh, data points, uh, and that created uh, huge potential for us. But it also created this issue, which we've been trying to address really ever since, of how mm-hmm. to manage those uh, data sets. So you're at the Archaeological Data Service, and uh, you get more involved with the data keeping and data preservation side. Sure. So after that, you were with the Glasgow Museum, is that correct? That's right. Uh, I... Uh, in my career, I've kind of always, uh, I suppose, uh, switched between uh, computing and, uh, I suppose, my core interests of archaeology. Uh, and at various points, I've tried to escape back into archaeology, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, what, what, what I moved into in the museums was a large memory institution. The uh, city of Glasgow, maybe not obvious to people outside of the city, but it actually has a very large museum collection, and there are 14 different museums in the city, so it's a very significant mm-hmm. outfit. Uh, I was, uh, for a little while, uh, I suppose you would say I was the head of the history department. I ran the, uh, we had a dozen curators on topics like uh, classic, uh, classical archaeology, history, uh, and so forth. Uh, and uh, that led me into sort of a little management of a little group. But what actually happened in practice was I ended up running quite a few IT projects while I was there as well, uh, as tends to happen in sort of project management roles, uh, that uh, you find yourself chairing committees or running uh, running extra little projects uh, on the side. So I ended up doing quite a lot of IT around the museum sector uh, when I was with the museums uh, in Glasgow. So your involvement, is that about when you started getting involved on a larger scale with uh, other institutions in the UK and, and internationally as well? Yeah, well, I suppose what it let me see was uh, the problems of a big institution or the problems of a large memory institution. Uh, so we did, for example, a survey of the museum's own digital preservation needs, uh, and it showed us certain things which uh, you know aren't, in a sense, remarkable. They are probably mappable to other agencies but uh, for example we counted i think it was 16 different departments with some responsibility or other for digital preservation uh, in this organization and and you think about it that's not necessarily a good th- that sounds like a good thing uh, but of course it, it, it points to the you know the fragmentation uh, of kind of management in that domain and and it, it emerges quite naturally you know the 
the museums had a photography department, they had a separate audiovisual services department, uh, there was also the conservators, and of course the conservators were concerned very much about preserving, for example, digital artworks. Uh, there were people in records management, there were people in uh, IT, there was a core IT team. So you can imagine how all of these different departments had some stake or other in digital preservation, but none of them had a particular challenge or responsibility to look after it. Did they have six, 16 different ways of doing things as well? Well, there was all sorts of uh, methods and practices, and uh, some of them had no, you know, were simply looking for help uh, and didn't, you know, there were backup processes and backup procedures. But I think it would be fair to say they were very far from having a, any kind of joined up or any kind of strategic preservation uh, plan or policy. Uh, and really the purpose of doing a survey of, or doing an assessment was really to try to get that a little bit onto the map and try to raise awareness internally uh, about these issues and try to encourage people into a little bit training, for example, and a little bit of a more strategic thinking around the issue. So how did the DPC come about? Well, the DPC came about uh, through a series of contacts. In fact, uh, the, I had been quite involved in the DPC uh, when I was with the Archaeology Data Service. Uh, it, it was a rather more of a kind of an informal friendship than a formal relationship, but the University of York uh, was host to both the Archaeology Data Service and the DPC uh, in, uh, well, in its early days. So we, we shared a lot of, uh, we, we, at one point we even shared some uh, staff. Uh, and so we were frequent visitors and frequent kind of allies of each other in perhaps an informal uh, way, as well as the formalities of being members of the coalition and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a kind of happy relationship, I suppose. Uh, and so I had retained an interest there. I had retained friends and professional colleagues and contacts. Uh, and it was one of those contacts who pointed out to me uh, when the post became available for the director of the DPC to say, you know, is this the sort of thing that still interests you? And uh, what would you uh, would you be interested in applying? And uh, after a few uh, backwards and forwards, I got my arm twisted into applying, and was quite delighted uh, when I was appointed. So it was really uh, uh, kind of working and you know, retaining some of my professional network and sort of friendships from uh, the times of uh, the Archaeology Data Service that I guess was led me back into uh, this domain. Uh, in, uh, but in a slightly broader sense uh, of working across digital preservation in all sorts of institutions uh, rather than just in my own kind of uh, either my own institution in Glasgow mm -hmm. uh, or in my own discipline which was in, uh, in archaeology. So you know I'm, I'm mistaken I thought that you had helped found the DV <coughs> DPC. No, no, not not strictly. <laughs> I would, that would be wrong for me to claim anything like that. Okay. Uh, I certainly was around at its formation, but I was a minor functionary and a small player in uh, in that. Uh, no, the DPC is actually coming up for its tenth anniversary. Uh, in fact, this is its tenth anniversary year, 2012, uh, and it was founded, I suppose, really by uh, the the laurels really ought to go to a combination of uh, Neil Beagree, who was uh, kind of the founding secretary. Uh, and did all the preparatory work in the early 2000s. Uh, and also uh, Lynn Brindley, who is or just retired as chair of the British or director of the British Library. Uh, and it was her initiative to uh, really pull the organisations together uh, that gave Neil the kind of, Neil Beagree, the uh, 
sort of uh, instruction to to do the preparatory work and set up. You know, all the all the fiddly stuff around uh, <laughs> uh, you know business plans and, uh, and articles of association and and whatnot. So, what was it like when you joined, and what's it like now? Yeah, well, I mean, I it was I did make a few changes. I suppose I was I was lucky insofar as the my first day at work more or less coincided uh, with the establishment of a new strategic plan for the DPC. It was handed to me, you know, this is this is the plan, really. Uh, and uh, as all strategic plans are, uh, it had a few, I think it was five high-level objectives, but not much detail as to how they ought to be delivered. So it was my job to go and uh, really set a, a work program based on this agenda which had been given uh, to me and it was fairly obvious I mean the DPC as an organization the membership organization had about 30 members uh, and the members were looking for obvious benefits out of their membership uh, so that's really where I suppose if I've changed anything it's more to do with the intensity uh, of activity uh, rather than any change really in the formula so for example we very quickly uh, established a programme of uh, briefing days and events uh, for members to come and attend. We established a a little grant programme which allows people to attend training events. Uh, We uh, commissioned, or are now in the process of commissioning, a whole bunch of uh, technology watch reports which give members access to kind of advanced thinking around specific themes. So suppose what I have is a formula, uh, or I was given a formula, uh, and then just you know, set off to to really do it and really make it uh, a success, I suppose, make it interesting for the members, make it worth their uh, subscription charges. And that seems to have worked. I'm, all, I'm always uh, always cautious in these predictions, but, uh, you know, we've, we're just short of... Uh, we've gone from 30 members to 40. Uh, we've now got a couple of extra project staff on board, uh, whereas previously there were only... When I joined, there were two staff. There are now four of us. Uh, so it feels like progress. It feels like growth, and uh, and that's been based on really, I suppose, an energetic engagement with the, the strategic plan and making sure that the members feel they're getting value for money. Do you think that since you've been yeah. the director, that the interest worldwide is kind of blossoming? It's it's expanding. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, I, I, there are external forces here that mean that digital preservation is a is a growing concern. Uh, and, it, and it's growing for uh, kind of reasons out, out, completely outside our kind of control. Uh, uh, things like the uh, you know just the sheer volumes of information yeah. that we now have to manage, but also the complexity of that information, which becomes more complex through time, uh, and also the importance. You know, the, the the value we place on that information continues to grow. Yeah. Uh, and it's been interesting, I think, through the. I mean, it's been tough times financially since I joined the coalition in 2009, uh, economically and so forth. But it does seem to me that, you know, digital is seen in some senses as a solution to some of the cost problems that people experience. And so, uh, you know, although one would think that this relatively obscure-sounding research area would, would suffer uh, as a result of the economic downturn, uh, it, we still seem to have grown uh, through a, a tough time, so it's uh, it's definitely a growing issue and one of which people are more uh, increasingly aware. Let's talk about that for a minute. So if you have, did you say 40 members? 
Yeah, I think we're 39. I can, I, I can never quite remember when they <laughs> put on the spot, but 39. Uh, we're looking for our 40th member. And it's a common practice among institutions now to collaborate and form collaborative sure. partnerships. Does the DPC, in a way, act as a sort of matchmaker? Do you help form these partnerships, uh, you know, Ab- money-saving yeah. partnerships? And uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I've, we've described it as exactly that, a kind of matchmaker or a kind of dating agency. Uh, what's what's obvious for a lot, especially the relatively junior staff uh, that are coming into this domain or becoming aware of these problems for the first time, is that very often the existing professional networks don't provide the sort of relationships they need to establish uh, with quite specialist or quite research-intensive uh, areas. So uh, the DPC allows those staff to get access to, you know, really what would otherwise be really quite exotic. Uh, partnerships and collaborations between, you know, big art museums, uh, scientific research uh, community, and you know, private companies. Uh, those are the sorts of networks which DPC kind of works around uh, and is able to foster both formally through the DPC, uh, but also in a sense, uh, more interestingly, between the members. So the kind of the bilateral or the Kind of multilateral relationships between members, uh, the DPC certainly helps to broker. So we've been talking about some of the details of the DPC, but for anybody that might listen to this podcast that just doesn't know anything about the Digital Preservation Coalition, can you put it in perspective for me? That, uh, among the entities and agencies in the UK, what is the Digital Preservation Coalition and what's its role among sure. the other institutions? Sure. So, I mean, from going from the top, so the the, the, the Digital Preservation Coalition is a it's a not-for-profit membership organisation. Uh, we have around 39 members. They are mostly organisational members, and they're mostly based in the UK and Ireland. We have, I suppose, two key roles. One of them you would describe as uh, advocacy which is sort of awareness raising and contributing to public policy debate and uh, trying to contribute to advocacy within institutions as well as within government uh, around areas that pertain to digital preservation, so uh, records management issues or copyright uh, regulations uh, and so forth, trying to raise awareness around digital preservation. Second area, uh, and the one which is probably more obvious and more appealing and more attractive in many ways is the work around uh, what you would broadly call uh, empowering. That's to say helping with training, helping with genuine information needs, clarifying, systematizing information from researchers that can be used and deployed uh, in organizations, uh, providing these briefing reports, providing these training days, providing uh, access to uh, sort of professional networks. Uh, our role, I suppose, is as a as, is as a, an umbrella uh, organisation or a, or a, a sort of safe place where organisations can meet. Uh, think of some of our members. So we have, for example, the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, uh, the British Library, uh, the National Archives, Public Records of Northern Ireland, so on and so forth. Uh, these are organisations which each of them have, if you like, part of digital preservation uh, within their kind of core mission. But generally speaking, it's a, it would be a small part or a segment of a wider 
uh, mission. And so the DPC provides a mechanism for those people engaged in that quite important strategic work uh, to come together. Uh, and, you know, the membership is very diverse. It's cross-sector, deliberately. And it's across disciplines. And I suppose you would categorize the members into, broadly speaking, three or four groups. So we have the uh, the, the people who, who broadly have the digital preservation challenge that they need to address for their own purposes. So the BBC uh, would come into that, the British Library, uh, National Records of Scotland. These are organisations with big collections that they need to look after. Tate, which is a big art museum, uh, they need to look after large collections. Uh, then we have agencies which are strategic, which are funders uh, broadly. Uh, that would include organisations like Creative Scotland, which is the government's uh, investment agent in the creative industries in Scotland. And what they're thinking around is the fact that they have, uh, they give grants to people and they want those grants to be well spent and they want those that money to be invested in resources that will last and will endure. Uh, so the research councils, uh, JISC, as I say, Creative Scotland, they have a strategic interest in this topic. And then finally, there's the researchers who are actually doing research around this topic. Uh, so University of Portsmouth or King's College London, uh, to an extent also the Digital Curation Centre in Edinburgh. Uh, these are, I suppose you would call these research institutions who are, who are trying to provide the tools to solve the problem. It sounds as if there are some commonalities with the Library of Congress. I mean, there are. Uh, one of our earliest friendship agreements is with uh, the Library of Congress, in particular with uh, folks in the, and I'm going to get the acronym wrong, the NDIIPP project, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, with uh, Laura and with Martha Anderson and with uh, others uh, there, because obviously the DPC's kind of role and mission is tends to be UK and Ireland focused. We have a couple from the US, but uh, they tend to be, our two US members are OCLC in Portugal, both of whom are actually very active in the UK and Ireland also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's an awful lot of commonality, and we, we are, you know, I would describe it as a very good, strong friendship between uh, what DPC does and what the uh, Library of Congress is doing. And influence as well, too. Is it true that you're involved with our digital preservation outreach program, the DEPO program? That's right. Uh, so uh, we have, uh, I'm, I am involved, I think, uh, I forget the exact title of the committee, but there's a sort of advisory and uh, oversight committee that I'm a member of, and I dial in kind of once every six months or so to uh, to that committee. Uh, and that's useful because like, I can learn a huge amount from what they've been doing and the sort of level of work and volume that they've been able to produce is really uh, astonishing. It's really wonderful to see. Uh, and I can learn from that. But also, you know, there are one or two tricks that we've uh, uh, learned over here around, uh, for example, the training and education. And there are opportunities in Europe and in the UK for investment in training. Uh, and when we are able to work together, then we're able to make the best of that fairly, you know, limited resource to make the, the, best, uh, the best outcome for both. And that, of the Atlantic. that was my understanding as well, that the library, uh, and you're being modest, that the library is taking cues from the DPC as far as this, uh, training the trainer and, and methods that you've used. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's true. I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't want to claim uh, the kind of uh, the origin of it, but uh, 
but uh, we have focused a lot on the training and workforce development in the last uh, year or so, or last well, since we were set up really. Uh, and you can understand first of all why, because it's a real need, uh, and I think that's I think that has been successful. And I think that is a model that others have wanted to uh, pick up on uh, or contribute to also. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, other, the other observation to make is that, uh, in any sense, digital preservation is a, an issue without borders. You know, it's, it's an international issue, mm-hmm. uh, and the standards are broadly speaking international. Uh, and so we, we, you know, we, it makes sense to, to work internationally. It makes sense to work together uh, on these topics. Uh, and you know, where someone's come up with a good idea around. I don't know, premise or uh, you know, metadata standard or whatever, and some useful training resources, then you know, it makes sense to share these and to work together. Now, a colleague told me that you often say that uh, you want to put yourself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Can you explain that? Sure. It's a, it's a, it's, okay, so it's a slightly flippant thing to say, and you know, I'm not, I'm quite, I'm quite happy employed, <laughs> and I won't keep it that way. But but on the other hand. Uh, there's a certain sense in which the Digital Preservation uh, Coalition exists to solve and to help resolve a set of particular problems at a particular time. Uh, and and there's a, there will come a point where digital preservation stops being a special interest uh, and starts becoming mainstream. And there'll become a point where there is no longer any need for you know, awareness raising or regulatory reform. There'll come a point where the research and development is largely complete uh, and the tools and services uh, are up and running. So there's a certain sense in which the more effective the coalition is, the more effective I am and my colleagues are in our work, uh, the faster we will ultimately make ourselves uh, redundant in that sense uh, and that what we do will be mainstream and it will be uh, taken for granted, and there will be less need for focused activity uh, and particular strategic thinking. Uh, whether that happens over uh, five years or whether that happens over 50 years uh, uh, is anyone's guess. And, and I suppose there will always be need for some uh, influencing and some uh, research and development and some uh, networking between practitioners. But the mission will certainly, uh, through that time, change. So is it? Will that be the point when you escape back to architecture? <laughs> or not? Archa- right. I'm saying architecture, archaeology. Archaeology. That's right. We'll uh, we'll just have a big party one day. We'll put up a flag and say we've done it, and then we can all go back to our real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> There's one last thing I wanted to ask you about that I thought it sure. seemed fascinating, and that's the roadshow. The idea of the roadshow. Can you explain that? Oh uh, yeah, sure. So. Uh, let me go back to first principles. So I think digital preservation has made huge progress in the last decade, 20 years, and, and the Library of Congress has been one of the innovators here in the, the kind of levels of investment and the tools that have all come out of the Library of Congress have been really wonderful. The, the, the paradox is that with all of these investments and with all of these projects from the European Commission and Library of Congress and so forth, uh, we've taken what's a, quite a daunting problem and we've made it quite even in a sense even harder because we now have all these acronyms and initiatives and tools and services that are slightly fragmented and don't quite work together or maybe research outputs that aren't quite ready for service uh, and that that creates if you like a barrier a new barrier uh, to participation so we sat down in about 2009 to think how can we provide really simple really straightforward bits of 
authoritative advice that people can pick up and run with and just you know do in their daily work. Uh, and I'm thinking here in particular of relatively small scale organisations. You, you'll be aware that some of the really best advice around digital preservation has also tended to come from some very large organisations. Uh, one thinks of uh, particular, for example, of uh, NASA's work around the OAIS model and the Committee for Space Data Systems, mm-hmm. which is wonderful if you're the size of NASA, but it's difficult to implement if you're a little public record office with you know maybe two full staff uh, and, a, and, a, and a little body of volunteers. In any case, we thought we should try and strip things back to really sensible, straightforward, achievable advice. And that was the Roadshow series where we took... Uh, we're now, I think, into our... We've certainly done two seasons of roadshows uh, around the UK and Ireland, uh, a day-long uh, kind of workshop with a combination of presentations, case studies, and some very simple practical exercises. Uh, and in those... Uh, roadshows we've had great responses because what I suppose we knew would happen is that when you get that little group together they almost start talking to each other and it's almost the networking between those people mm-hmm. and more than anything is the outcome uh, from the uh, from the event and that's that's you know that's got people thinking and it's given them practical useful tools to get started with but also to make progress so you know candidly some of the people in the audience simply need to hear a message like you know, don't keep the backups on the floor of the server room. Uh, other people can get much more sophisticated advice. So, uh, you know, some people have gone on to do some very good work around, for example, preservation planning. Uh, preservation planning is something that you can begin to do without actually a huge resource. Uh, you don't necessarily need a huge technical infrastructure or a huge uh, staff complement to start making preservation plans. So that that's the sort of tool that can get people to get them started. And once they've seen what the what the plan looks like, then they can start to prioritise what looks like a big problem can be broken down into a series of smaller achievable problems. And that that's all good uh, for everyone, I think. That sounds so terrific. Can you give me just a a little example of a specific place? Because I'm trying to imagine where this would take place when you say it a small institution. Do you just pick a place out of the phone book? Yeah, no. Uh, well, so uh, we, in, in each time we've run it, we've uh, so the first set of roadshows, I think we did eight or nine, uh, we did it in association with uh, the Society of Archivists. Uh, and we did it specifically around, I feel like, local uh, government archives, county archives. Uh, so, uh, I mean, a specific example, uh, we had one event which we ran, I think it was in the Gloucester County Council Archives, uh, which is a county in the southwest of England, and we we uh, got, you know, archivists, especially local government archivists from the southwest of England together, and we just had a day where we looked at some of the tools and we talked through some of the problems, and there were one or two from national agencies and one or two from, you know, students and one or two from universities also came along and spoke and exchanged some of their stories and their experiences. Uh, I think we had maybe 50 people, uh, you know, enough people to make it a worthwhile day uh, and a very strong set of feedback which says that that was actually really useful for people because they can take a day out of their work. Uh, it's harder for them to take you know, a whole week or, or, or longer uh, to go and do training, especially if the training gives them a set of tools and ideas that 
things that realistically they're not in a position to implement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really in the getting started. The, the second round of, of uh, presentations we did was aimed at the library community. Uh, and again, a similar sort of feel to it. Local institutional libraries, a lot of academic libraries came along. Uh, and we, we explicitly called it, uh, the series, we, we, we called it Getting Started in Digital Preservation because we just want people to be able to get started uh, and not be bewildered or put off by uh, the complexity of the issues that might be perceived. Uh, and again, so another example of that, we had uh, 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 what would be one of those. We had a day in uh, in London. We took over a little conference centre in London. We uh, advertised it for 40 people. Uh, we... Uh, at about two weeks before we realised we were swamped with people wanting to come. Uh, we doubled the amount of space. We took, I think in the end, 85 people, I think it was, uh, and we could sell a filled room twice over. So, you know, there's a real demand for that. And again, it was little local archives. I'm trying to think of people who came for that. Things like a, there was at least one cathedral uh, sentence uh, archivist along. Uh, we had a couple of people from... Uh, schools and colleges, as well as some of the bigger institutions. We had some people from commerce, uh, one or two people from the banking industry, I remember, coming to that. Uh, A real mix, real mix. It's a simple but a great title, Getting Started in Digital Preservation. Yeah, we thought so. We tried to just really sum it up in a simple phrase that people would understand why they would would want to come. That's perfect. That gives a variety of people an an easy entrance into the topic, you know, people who may have been thinking about it or considering it, but it's too daunting a challenge to take on. So will this be ongoing, the the roadshow? You said you've you've gone in stages or in in different uh, waves. That's right. So, as I say, the first year we did this with uh, specifically with the with uh, kind of archivists community, mm-hmm. and it was a partnership. I mean, it was done with the Society of Archivists sure. and others. The second year we ran it, so the second wave, if we call it that, we was a partnership with uh, the British Library's Preservation Advisory Centre. There was a special interest sort of advisory centre at the British Library, and they were had seen this and they thought this was a good idea and we were quite delighted when they said Look, let's try and do something uh, similar uh, so, we, so the last round or sort of second round was with them the third year or the third round we just uh, we, we thought we should do something for students uh, we sat down with uh, one or two uh, people at, and, and I mean specifically students who are studying archiving or studying librarian or information studies at university kind of masters level uh, students and, and we thought specifically we should try to give them some career advice. It's difficult because there are no careers really in digital preservation, but, but we know there will be uh, in the future. So we did a kind of careers, I suppose you would call it like a, a kind of careers day, uh, where we got students from Dundee University, where was it, Goldsmith, I think, no, City University, University College London and Aberystwyth University. Uh, all together for a day in London where we said, look, here are the careers <laughs> in digital preservation. And instead of me just saying, here are the careers, we got good examples. We got people out uh, who had, you know, like myself, in some way, stumbled into digital preservation uh, and who, you know, then talked about their problems and their challenges and how they found their way into the discipline. Uh, that was a real hit as well. So although it's a slightly different approach, it wasn't a roadshow, uh, I can see us doing that again in the future. 
You mentioned that in the uh, Library of Congress video about uh, digital preservation, that, that there will be a need for um, uh, proper training. Do you think that you can um, sum up or describe the state of training of librarians in the U.K.? Is digital preservation being incorporated slowly into the curriculum, or is it making good progress? I would say it's, first of all, I would say it's very mixed. Uh, there are you know, quite a few library and archive schools in the U.K., and each of them would be at a different state of development. Uh, I think uh, there are one or two really good examples uh, that uh, I think provide a really good model and a really good curricula, but there are uh, inevitably others where the perhaps thinking is less advanced or less uh, sophisticated, uh, and that might need to that might well need to be or will almost certainly need to be addressed uh, by them. And you know, things like digital library technologies have been the core of a lot of. Uh, library curricula for uh, several years or for, for a decade or more, and so there's hope. I mean, that would that would be, to my mind, where it would fit uh, most naturally. I think there is also a kind of a, a more kind of broader social or economic need for people to have better skills in, for example, programming, uh, especially around information retrieval, uh, those sorts of uh, broader uh, kind of fundamental skill sets. Uh, which aren't just the library or information uh, issues. They are kind of, you know, uh, anyone doing any kind of data science, anyone doing any information management, uh, you know, for whatever function or whatever purpose, will need to have access to those. Right, and librarians should, if not concentrate in technology, should be able to at least be conversant in it. That's right. I mean, it's it's a it's a, a sort of truism that a lot of I mean, a lot of this requires collaboration. And digital preservation, and a lot of that collaboration means some of the services are going to be done for you by someone else. And if those services are done by someone else, then you kind of need to understand what it is they're doing, even if you don't need to understand the detail of how they've implemented it. Uh, and so we need people who are at least at least capable of, of managing that sort of kind of technical aspects of a, of a, a collaborative relationship. I mentioned we do advocacy work. One of the ways we do that is by having a, every two years having an award for the best projects in digital preservation. It's an international thing. Last winner was the library, no, uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory uh, with a Library of Congress project, actually. Uh, so we're going to be doing this again. Uh, we're just about to release the call for, you know, call for nominations. Uh, so just encourage you all to take a look uh, and to Google for the Digital Preservation Awards 2012. Uh, it's our 10th anniversary, so we're going to do a blockbuster this year, uh, and you'll get details of that uh, on our website. Or just Google that phrase, Digital Preservation Awards. You'll like. Are there door prizes for for people who are not nominated who would? Yeah. Ah, uh, well, you know, we make this in such a way that everyone's a winner, uh, and it's a hex. <laughs> So, for example, let me explain so uh, how we actually do that. So, uh, every nomination has to be countersigned by a senior member of staff in your organisation. So that means, you know, if you're doing a little research project in a little university somewhere, that means your vice chancellor or your uh, president or whatever has to countersign the application. And if that means he reads a little bit about your research, then that's also fine, you know. Uh, we'll also make sure that everyone who applies, you know, they get a nice email back and they get some comments back that uh, will kind of give them some useful 
hopefully praise that they can put in front of their own senior manager. So everyone who applies gets something useful out of it. That would be my hope. Great pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Kilbride, thank you very much for talking with me today. My pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.